0: Welcome back to another episode of the Hatchets Weekly News Podcast, getting to the bottom of it. I'm Alec Rich. So last week, GW made a major announcement with the decision to require all students, faculty, and staff who are in person in the fall to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 prior to returning to campus. Despite GW not yet making the decisive choice about whether to fully hold in-person classes in the fall or not, this announcement is certainly an important one as we approach that impending decision. The announcement also follows a growing list of universities nationwide, including our own neighbors, Georgetown University and American University, who announced two weeks ago that COVID vaccinations would be required for all students. Per the announcement, GW community members will need to receive any of the three vaccines authorized for use in the United States and then upload their vaccination cards to GW's online medical portal. So as such with many big announcements from the university, we now turn to experts who can offer some insight as to the significance here and what this really means for GW heading towards the fall. Both expert guests today are friends of the podcast, and were here to speak with me a year ago to the day when they each accurately predicted what GW would look like for fall 2020. Now a year later, first up we have Dr. Georges Benjamin, the Executive Director of the American Public Health Association and the former Secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. All right, Dr. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining me.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So what do you think of? the significance of GW making this mandatory vaccination decision, and it's one that very much aligns with this growing vaccination trend that we're seeing amongst universities nationwide?
1: Well, you know, obviously, there's we've always known that um, schools are a high-risk place for infectious diseases, and so this is certainly in line with um, the mandatory vaccinations that we required. In fact, when I was the D.C. Health Commissioner, I certainly required that schools in the city, have a, a rule around vaccinations for all the childhood diseases um, and the and the adult diseases. You know, um, so this is not uncommon. I think the um, if you're going to require it, you need to require everybody. Uh, I do put one caveat that um, while this product is still under emergency use authorization, it's not a fully licensed product. And I know that some schools are making this requirement under the as a contingency, assuming that the FDA will then fully licensed the product. Um, so I think that's the one caveat about whether or not one can make uh, that actually stick with a um, uh, a product on the emergency use. Having said that, we all believe this vaccine is safe and effective, the evidence is, is real clear. There's no medical uh, or public health reason not to do it. But as I understand it, the way the school is, is treating this is they're treating this as a a medical document that goes in your medical record uh, as they do for other kinds of things. and I. And, and they're putting a variance in for people who cannot get vaccinated, um, and they're not requiring anyone who doesn't uh, uh, have to come on campus to to be vaccinated. Um, so they're using it purely, as a, in many ways, as a an equitable disease control um, uh, tool.
0: What do you think is the importance of GW extending this requirement to faculty and staff as well, which is something that other schools have not done to some extent?
1: Well, you know, the, the people, the faculty and staff are older, probably have more chronic diseases. And therefore at greater risk. And so I think the fact that faculty are um, being treated at the same rate way that they're treating students um, makes all the sense in the world, right? I mean, you want people to be, you want to treat herd immunity, or I'm, as I'm saying now, community immunity within the, the population of people in which you're working and and being around every day, then from a public health perspective, this absolutely makes sense. Again, I, I, I do have concerns about... Um, the people that can misuse a requirement, but schools have not historically done that so um, there's much less of concern from the school's perspective.
0: So what do you mean by that in terms of you know, the concern you mentioned the concern with the passports and since W students and community members are going to be required to upload a picture of the card to my understanding to um, yeah. medical portal.
1: Well, several things. First of all, you always, you always have the risk of them being fraudulent. So there, there is a degree of um, a trust involved in, in doing that. Uh, secondly, the university, obviously for an employer, as an employer, is um, not only doing it from a school's perspective, but they're making a, an employment-based decision. Um, and I have had real concerns about employers who require their staff, you know, their employees to be vaccinated as a, as a condition of employment. So I do think that that has to be thought through from an employment perspective as well. Um, but if you're going to require students to do it, you know, and you want to make sure everyone in the, in the place is vaccinated, I don't know how you can do the students without doing the faculty. And of course, you're going to do faculty. Then you got to do the maintenance workers. You got to do the engineers. You got to do anyone who's going to be around. I do think that um, while they may decide to require it, the best way to not politicize this, because it can get very political, is to you know, actively encourage people to get vaccinated, provide paid um, time off to get vaccinated, you know, give people the time and the, the resources so they can get the shot. And since the university is um, also an academic medical center with a big hospital, um, there's no reason why they can't um, ensure that their employees, either through occupational health or some other way, can get vaccinated. Again, at no cost to the employee.
0: And so what do you think this decision, if moving forward, and we have in-person fall, hypothetically, and- the faculty students and staff are vaccinated. What does this decision allow for from a public health standpoint? You know, things like weekly COVID testing or an isolation dorm rendered unnecessary well, by this.
1: It gives people a greater sense of security, but I think it's very important. And one of the reasons that I've been concerned about vaccine passports is that it can give you a false sense of security. So you really have to do this in the in the in the context of a comprehensive disease control program, which means that um um, you will need to still have some requirement for testing if people have symptoms. Um, you're going to need to do contract tracing and isolation. You're still going to have to go through all the, have to have all the systems in place that um, those universities that tried to go back to school or did go back to school, you know, early in the outbreak that had to have testing, contact tracing, isolation and quarantine policies. Um, you still got to, you're going to have somebody's going to come on campus, even, even, though you guarantee everybody's vaccinated, you're going to have somebody come on campus that's uh, um, that has COVID. They may not be a student. And remember that you're, you're a campus that uh, is um, in the middle of a big city. Having your faculty and students vaccinated doesn't mean that they're not going to be exposed to someone uh, at a restaurant um, or some event or some meeting. And we do know that while there's a lot of great evidence coming out that the disease protects you, not only from being very sick and and going and dying, but does have some degree of protection um, about getting infected and being, and transmitting the disease to others. We just don't know um, how much yet. And um, so the point is that we do know there are breakthrough infections and for fully vaccinated people. Although it's very rare, you know, it's only like, it's less than 6,000 people um, in all the millions of people we vaccinated. So it is very rare phenomenon, but it does occur. So you just have to be, make sure that you're, you make the assumption that if someone comes up with COVID like symptoms, they need to be tested. And then if found to be positive, you need to have the process in place um, to um, work with the local health department to, um, you know, to do contact tracing and, and, uh, isolating quarantine as appropriate. And you may have to revaccinate or vaccinate people who have not been vaccinated around that process.
0: So there should be still some level of concern, not to the extent that it was then.
1: But still yeah, there, there the still should be some level of concern. I mean, you know, the person who comes in with, um, you know, the, the traditional COVID-like symptoms, fever, muscle ache, headache, et cetera, even if they tell you they're fully vaccinated, COVID is low on the list, but it should still be on your list of potentials. Hmm. And you do a flu scheme, they don't have influenza. Um, they don't have any other disease. You probably ought to check for COVID as well. But um, schools and universities are also going to have to, at least from a planning perspective, prepare that maybe a year from now, we're gonna be you know, getting booster shots. May not happen, but there's a, there's a pretty good likelihood that that's the case. Dr.
0: Benjamin, thank you. Listen, thank you. Next up to provide the administrative and academic perspective to many of the points made by Dr. Benjamin is Dr. Lynn Pasquarello, President of the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Hey, Dr. Pasquarello, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. So what do you think is the significance of GW making this decision, which is you know, one that very much aligns with a growing vaccination trend amongst universities nationwide?
2: And the significance is signaling the extent to which they are making the health, well-being, safety of faculty, students, staff, paramount in their decision-making with respect to safeguarding education in the, for the fall.
0: So from a practical and administrative standpoint or, or an academic standpoint as well, you know, what do you think this in-person fall might look like? And you know, is, is something like weekly COVID-19 testing or an isolation dorm rendered unnecessary by this? And you know, Do you think we can have something like fully in-person classes or a hybrid model is still something that should be considered as well? I think the hope of all
2: college administrations is that there will be face-to-face instruction in the fall, but understanding that not all faculty, students, and staff can be vaccinated because of uh, the fact that they, have, they are international students or they have certain health considerations or religious exemptions that would prevent them from becoming vaccinated. Many are looking at contingencies in relation to hybrid models to deliver a curriculum. Those that are looking at face-to-face instruction, particularly if they're doing it exclusively, are following the recommendations from the CDC. And CDC is now looking at whether to loosen up restrictions on mandating mask wearing for outdoor activities. And and so I think we'll see some changes, especially as uh, the vaccines get
0: FDA approval
2: uh, later, this spring or early in the summer, which is what's anticipated.
0: Uh, from, uh, I guess, looking more specifically at what campus could really look like, we've talked about on this podcast, the post-academic task force that GW is going through right now where, you know, you have faculty administrators looking at potential possibilities for the fall. Do you think that there are still elements of, it you know, be it teleworking or the virtual environment that will continue to be incorporated moving forward?
2: I think so. We have learned a lot from this pivot to online remote learning, the ways in which uh, it frees some individuals up to meet other responsibilities in ways that are more family friendly than in the past. And so the flexibility that we've seen can work in higher education is being employed on a a long-term basis, and in some instances, a permanent basis. So Colleges and universities will look at the capacity for social distancing, for keeping people safe, whether they are adequately ventilated spaces in the classrooms and in offices and all of this will be taken into account and making
0: decisions about what to do in the fall and beyond. So for a school like GW then do you think it's essentially back to business as usual?
2: I don't think it's back to business as usual for anyone (laughs) in the fall. I think we'll still be looking at uh, how to respond to COVID variants, the efficacy of the current vaccines in relation to these emerging diseases, whether we'll need boosters, Uh, we may back off on testing and uh, isolation Uh, uh, I think that all campuses are going to be looking closely at whether they should still have mask mandates and social distancing regulations in place
0: and on that point about which is obviously we don't know fully the extent to which that we needed but if they become necessary do you think a school would need to mandate those down the line as well
2: I think so. Uh, in in the way that we mandate other vaccines, and this is just provides ongoing protection. And without that, then we fall into that same risk category as before, and uh, the the potential for a surge in in the
0: virus. As you mentioned, and GW has also announced this as part of this this larger announcement in terms of vaccines that there will be limited exceptions um, for extenuating circumstances. And one possible scenario that I want to talk through was international students who have already had. A tremendous hardship in terms of navigating this pandemic environment but one possible scenario it could be a student coming back from another country who's yet to be vaccinated um, but they wish to return to in-person classes in the fall what would you do with that person then since they obviously still need a few weeks in that case before being fully protected even if they got vaccinated immediately upon returning. And campuses are
2: looking at a variety of options including have them having them return early putting them in uh, isolated residence halls. So quarantining them, uh, making sure that the community is safe, but also ensuring that they have access to a vaccine and they can return in the fall. It may mean that they have to take courses online for the first few weeks uh, and then can integrate into the the classroom fully.
0: What do you expect to be kind of the overarching trend in terms of, I mean, do you think that this largely will continue to be pushed to a lot of other schools in terms of vaccination and we've already seen a large number of universities do this but do you think this will just continue to spread throughout universities around the country in terms of mandating it?
2: We certainly are seeing a trend toward mandating it but of course we've talked about this in the past that uh, there are divisions along partisan lines and so we see in blue states uh, more of a likelihood to mandate this. Places like Iowa, Florida are prohibiting mandating of vaccination for uh, workplace reentry for colleges and universities. They're not allowing for COVID passports as a condition for return. And so uh, many colleges and universities are, are looking at what they can do within the context of the political environment in which they're located. And uh, so much of this we see is liability driven. We've already seen that Rutgers, uh, the first to announce that it was gonna mandate COVID vaccinations for the fall has a suit that was filed against it today. Uh, and so having to deal with the issues of uh, liability and ensuring that we're doing whatever we can to promote success for students in work citizenship and life is a daunting task for college leaders these days.
0: Dr. Hasker, thanks so much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Al Rich and is produced by Kira Reagan.